When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, that host of yours. You know the one. I'm sorry this episode is a little bit late. As some of you may have seen on social media, I've just had some stuff going on. But I am here with you now. Many of you have asked in the past if I have a P.O. box, and guess what? I got one. So if you have something you want to send me, just shoot me an email, mythsbaby at gmail.com, and I will send you the address. There are a few people who have asked me this in the past. I can't find your messages. I'm sorry. Please send me a new one so I can send you the address. 
And just a reminder to you Vancouver listeners that I will be at the Vancouver Podcast Festival. It's free. It's being held, or my show rather, is being held at the Downtown Library at 12.30 p.m. on November 10th. It's even a long weekend. No excuses not to come out. I hope to go out for a drink afterwards too and invite any listeners who may want to join. So that should be fun. But enough of such local things. Guys, today we're back with part two of the episode on Euripides' back eye, the bloody, gruesome, maniacal end to this incredible play. But first, before we dive into today's episode, I want to play you just a quick clip. I was lucky enough to be a guest on the latest episode of the podcast, Deviant Women. If you're not already listening to that, you should be. Two awesome women discussing often misunderstood or misrepresented women of the past. Yes, please. I like to think I got a little bit of special treatment too with this one because we covered the story of none other than Medea, her fucking self, Medea. So please enjoy this little snippet of my episode of Deviant Women on Medea. And if you want to listen to the rest of the episode, make sure you subscribe to Deviant Women. And the back eye coming up next. And then they get to Iolcus, which is Jason's homeland. And his rightful place as the heir of Iolcus has been usurped by somebody else, Peleos. Yeah, his uncle has yeah. come in and in very Hamlet-esque fashion. Yes, I was going to say, it's actually quite Shakespearean, this <laughs> yeah. version of the story. And has come in and, and taken over. But she has a solution. As always. She always has and, a solution. Yeah, is. a very calculated, also very bloody and very graphic move Mm, and that is that she tricks his daughters so Peleus is pretty old and the daughters are like oh wow you've reinvigorated Jason's father because she did that she gave him a potion which made him healthy and strong again can you do the same with our father and she's like yeah no worries like I've got this potion I guess and I'm going to show you I'm going to put this old ram we'll chop up the old ram put it in the potion and hey a young ram has sprung out isn't that amazing magic wow and so the daughters get really excited and chop up their father and put him in the thing the in cauldron the cauldron basically they make a soup yeah yeah <laughs> they make a dad soup a dad yeah soup. but of course this dad soup lacks all of the magic and herbs and potions that medea <laughs> has put in her previous soup Oh my God. I just, again, this part of the story is Medea committing a really gruesome act, but through somebody else. Yeah. She actually doesn't perform. Well, in some versions of the story, she goads on the daughters to kill him, but she also slits his throat. Okay. She also does take part in the action of. But it's also what is so kind of fucked about this story is that she makes them so culpable like Mm. she implicates them in this horrific act and so can you imagine being those daughters and then just being like what have we done Mm -hmm. we chopped up our dad and in the eyes of the gods like they did it you know like she helped them but they did it there's no yes yeah there's no getting convinced in the eyes of the gods and what you've actually done so she just yeah she uses all she has to sort of trick people into doing exactly what she wants and it's always 
yeah. incredibly gruesome. But, I mean, that wouldn't hold up in a court of law now if you were like, well, she told me to cut my dad up and cook him in a soup. She so said it's it was her magic. fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, really the daughters are the ones who do it. So it's, She's getting off on a technicality. <laughs> I would say that's more than a technicality. But she definitely is – she is the influence. She is yeah. – the instrumental one. In but it. again, I think this brings us back to that whole combination of that sort of the knowledge of magic, the knowledge of poisons, the knowledge of herbology, oh, pharmaca. Pharmaca, yeah. And her intelligence, her wits, her her ability to manipulate. And we on our podcast talk about what manipulation means for women because it has such negative connotations. But if you remember the powerlessness of women in history and society and in mythology, manipulation is often the only means that women have for agency because it is about enacting power behind the scenes. And so really she is combining these two forms of power, the only two forms of power that are available to her as a woman, essentially. She is an extraordinary woman and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a moment. But she is making the best of the two things that she has, isn't she? Yeah, her wits to manipulate others and her magic. Yeah, yeah. she, I mean, especially in ancient Greece, there was so little power. You were just property as a woman. So, I mean, her, the necessity of her to Jason is what mm. she is really valuing, you know, seeing that she is what is keeping him alive and keeping him successful, which of course is then going to lead to even more drama Mm. as we continue. But yeah, I mean, she knew exactly, she knows exactly how to use what she has to keep herself in this position of power. Yes. And it is entirely for Jason as well. But that's, I think, the interesting question of whether or not she's under some sort of love spell, because that would, I guess, help to explain the extremity of her actions because it is entirely about supporting Jason. Or is she doing this because in betraying her family and leaving her home, she does need to hold on to Jason and that relationship to maintain her own power? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. She would have nothing if he left her. So once she's done one thing, it's sort of like, well, now I have to stay with him no matter what. Yeah. Mm, So either way, the extremity of her actions really comes down to that A, devotion to Jason, but B, perhaps that devotion is also about holding on to her Mm. own power and agency. Just self-preservation, yeah. Yes. Well, because she's in exile now. She can never go home again. And this does bring us, I suppose, to the next version of Medea, I suppose, in this Mm. general mythology. Because in this kind of Jason and the Argonauts version of of Medea, this is pretty much where her, her story comes to an end, I suppose. Like, oh, she does sort of exist further on into, into myth. But really her story here in terms of how we remember her now is picked up with what is essentially one man's version of her mm. myth, Euripides' play, Medea. And it is a play that does bring up these questions of the fact that she has become an exile from her homeland. She is very much an other in a very strange and foreign world to Mm. her. And so, yes, pretty much everything she has now does rely on Jason and Jason is about to take all of that away from her. Oh, Jason, what have you done? Yes. Are we ready to get then into Euripides, Medea? Happy to. I've been ready all my life.
nerds. It was so fun. Please go listen to that episode. It was just so fascinating, so interesting. I learned some things and I learned I love Medea even more than I already knew I did. And speaking of Euripides, the god Dionysus has returned to Thebes. Of course, he's not telling anyone that he's the god. For all they know, this man is a priest, a devotee of Dionysus, the one who's bringing the god to Thebes, here to convince the people of Dionysus's importance, how vital it is that they worship him. Dionysus has already convinced the women to do exactly that. Whether he's convinced them or they're under a little bit of a spell, it's a little bit unclear. The spell will come in later. He has a whole slew of followers, though, maenads or bacchants, whichever you prefer to call them. These women out in the forested mountains having a good old bacchanal, drinking wine, hanging out, really enjoying themselves. Sometimes they rip cows to shreds. You know how it goes. Pentheus, though, current king of Thebes, is not convinced. He's stubborn and doesn't want to be told that the women can be right about anything. No, he doesn't believe that Dionysus is a rightful god. He wants to remove all the maenads from the mountains, imprison them in Thebes, and stop this worship in its tracks. Even when a messenger arrives to tell him what the women have been up to, to explicitly convince him that he must worship this god— Not even when his own grandfather, Cadmus, and Tiresias, the blind prophet, come to convince him. No, Pentheus isn't going to be convinced of Dionysus' legitimacy. This is episode 62, Ripping Your Family to Shreds, Euripides' Bacchae, part 2. The messenger has come to Pentheus, tells him all he knows about this new god Dionysus and the women that have left the city to follow him, in addition to those that arrived with him, and Pentheus remains in disbelief. Like I said, he just can't be convinced. When the messenger finishes his story, finishes trying to convince Pentheus that Dionysus is incredibly powerful, he isn't a god to be ignored... Pentheus then notes only that the women's actions are the real problem, that they must all be captured and imprisoned, that he won't be treated this way by women. Meanwhile, Dionysus, though in disguise, is still there, and he too has tried convincing Pentheus, though he's sick of it now. He simply warns him against removing the women from the mountains, where they're now holy to the god Dionysus. It will only serve to anger the god even more. Pentheus is getting more and more angry, though he's blinded by it. At this point, he notes aloud that instead of sacrificing to the god, he'll sacrifice the women themselves, that they deserve it. This is quite significant because human sacrifice was not a thing in ancient Greece. Euripides is making the point that Pentheus is losing his humanity. He's gone too far as he tries to deal with Dionysus and his maenads. He's becoming a tyrant, if not worse. But he isn't beyond saving yet. Dionysus offers him the chance to make things right, to redeem himself for how he's chosen to handle this thing he sees as a threat. He tells Pentheus that he won't be able to defeat these women, that their wands will defeat the bronze of the soldiers' weapons. Pentheus thinks that's laughable, so Dionysus offers to bring the women to Pentheus so that he may back his threats directly. But Pentheus only sees this as Dionysus mocking him, so instead... Dionysus offers to take Pentheus to see the women. This Pentheus is into.
Dionysus offers to bring Pentheus to the women, and Pentheus absolutely wants to go. He tells Dionysus that he'd give an awful lot to see these women in their new place in the mountains. Pentheus's motivations here are interesting. Is he afraid of the women? Intimidated? Jealous? Interested? He's so many things here. He wants to lock them up, but it's not entirely clear why, except that they've found this new kind of freedom that doesn't involve men. Of course, this would be threatening in itself, but Pentheus is also very obviously fascinated by these women, and that's what seems to be taking over here. Dionysus can't help but ask why Pentheus is suddenly so into seeing these women in action when just moments ago all he could think about was imprisoning them. I want to see them drunk, he replies. It would be so shocking, so awful. Women, drunk? The horror! Okay, I added those last two bits. Dionysus, rightly, confirms that Pentheus would like to see something he's just said would very much offend him. Yes, that's right, is the reply, provided I can hide in the trees and avoid their notice. You won't be able to hide. They'll find you, Dionysus counters. Hmm, you're probably right. Why don't I lead you there, Dionysus proposes. Do you want to try? Yes, Pentheus replies, getting more excited. Please, take me there. I can't wait. This is when one starts to question Pentheus and his intentions. Here. Dionysus says, handing Pentheus a piece of clothing, put on this dress. Dionysus explains that the women will kill Pentheus if they discover a man has infiltrated them, so he must disguise himself as one of the women. This continues, the costume getting more and more elaborate. Dionysus provides Pentheus with a dress, a wig, and all the trappings of the other maenads. While excited at first, Pentheus becomes a bit wary as the details keep getting added. I can't dress as a woman, he says finally, but Dionysus is adamant. The women will kill you if you fight them, he says. Dionysus explains that he'll bring Pentheus to the women via secret pathways so that Pentheus isn't seen. And eventually, Pentheus leaves the stage, entering the palace where he explains that maybe he'll go inside and arm himself so he can go up against the maenads alone. Or maybe he'll go inside and do as Dionysus suggests instead, dressing up as one of them. When Pentheus is gone, Dionysus lets loose his plan. He's speaking to the chorus, the Bacchants, those women he's had with him all along. These foreign women who traveled to Thebes with Dionysus for the express purpose of spreading his godliness. But of course, he's still in disguise as not the god. So he speaks to Dionysus himself. This disguised Dionysus calling on the god. Now it's time for him to do the work. Drive Pentheus mad, Dionysus asks of his god self. If he's sane, he'll never go along with it. Never disguise himself as a woman to sneak up upon the maenads in the mountains. No, drive him mad. I want him to be laughed at by all the Thebans. He deserves it after all the threats he's made to the maenads, to the god Dionysus himself. I'll get him in the dress, and in it he'll go to his death at his own mother's hand. Then he'll see the true god Dionysus, son of Zeus and Semele. After a while, after the chorus has sung their ode, Dionysus calls into the palace, calling out Pentheus. Let me see you, he calls out. Let me see you dressed as a frenzied maenad, just the same as your mother and aunt. So Pentheus exits the palace. He's dressed up as the women in the mountains with all the trappings of the maenads he's so recently tried to lock away. He looks just like his own mother and his aunt who've been off in the forest getting drunk on wine. 
The issue here seems unclear. I don't think that it's necessarily that he'd be laughed at for dressing this way. Perhaps it is. I mean, this is a dark patriarchy. But it's also that the women would have control over Pentheus, dressed up as one of them. When Pentheus is outside, he's seeing double. Not only that, he asks Dionysus if he's grown horns. You look like a bull now, he says. Or did you always? The god Dionysus is working his magic on Pentheus, just as planned. The god is near, Dionysus in disguise tells Pentheus. He's on our side now. Dionysus helps Pentheus adjust his outfit. A lock of hair out of place here, a bit of dress adjustment there. You'll see me as a friend when you see that the maenads are perfectly sane, Dionysus tells Pentheus, if perhaps a bit ominously. Pentheus' attitude changes more and more as he and Dionysus discuss the plan. He becomes more enamored with the idea of the maenads and of dressing up like one of them. What they're doing up in the mountains, the freedom and power they have, it's infectious. He begins to get a bit envious. But all the same, he still plans to hide and spy on the maenads, at least at first. He's still a little afraid of them, not helped by Dionysus pointing out how important it is that Pentheus not show the women who he really is under the disguise. His ego begins to grow, believing he can see these women, what they're doing in seclusion, where they believe no one's watching. He thinks it will make him more impressive, more powerful, more manly, even. He starts to plan the triumphant return to Thebes after he's seen them, how he'll parade himself through the city, having experienced the Bacchic rites of the now-famous maenads of Dionysus, and come back to tell the tale. This part Dionysus doesn't love. He's tolerating Pentheus because he has a plan, but he's getting annoyed, to say the least. But Pentheus is off in his own little world in his own mind now. Even Dionysus tries to imply, if not outright, tell Pentheus what he has in store for him. I'll bring you out to see them, he says, but someone else will bring you back. My mother, Pentheus replies. The maenads will make entertainment of you, Dionysus tells him. You will be carried away in your mother's arms. To all this, Pentheus keeps interrupting. He doesn't understand what Dionysus is saying, or he thinks he does, but he's very much misunderstanding. You're spoiling me, is his final reply to Dionysus's comment about being carried away in his mother's arms. Dionysus says in response, quote, a kind of spoiling. Well, I deserve it, is Pentheus's reply, if he only fully understood what he was saying. He does deserve it, what's coming to him, what Dionysus has in store. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. 
Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pentheus exits the stage then, but the chorus sings about what's happening, though we in the audience don't see it. Run, go to the mountains, they sing, where the daughters of Cadmus dance together for their rituals. Drive them to madness against this man, dressed as a woman who spies on the women as they dance, hidden away in the trees. His mother will get him first, will spot him where he spies. She'll bring the others. Who is this man, watching us, following us? She won't know who he is, will even question who the man's mother could be. Not a human mother, she will accuse. The chorus sings of death, how it doesn't wait for excuses. Honor the gods, they sing. Let justice kill the man with no god, no law, no righteousness. The chorus sings to Bacchus, to Dionysus, asking him to come to them, to ensnare this, quote, maenad hunter. Give him over to the women who worship you, to your maenads, to their Bacchic rites. Finally, a messenger arrives. He tells the chorus that Pentheus is dead. The messenger is distraught, mourning his king. The chorus, meanwhile, are thrilled, much to this messenger's dismay. They couldn't be happier, and they tell him that. Quote, the wicked man is dead. He died on his wicked quest. Tell us, how did he die? They ask the messenger. 
So the messenger tells the story, where they went and what they did when Pentheus exited the stage last. We went deep into the mountains, he says, following the path. Finally, we came upon them, the women, the maenads in the forest. They were making their wands, singing their Bacchic songs, a whole group of women. But Pentheus couldn't see them. He told us he needed to get up higher, into the trees, to get a better look. The stranger, he says, referring to Dionysus in disguise, he did something magical then. He reached up and pulled the highest branch of a pine tree down. He settled Pentheus on the branch and let go. The branch sprung back, bringing Pentheus high into the sky, perched atop the highest tip of this tree. But from the highest point of the tree, Pentheus could easily be seen by the maenads. Suddenly, the stranger had disappeared and the voice of Dionysus calls out. "'Ladies,' he called, "'here is the man who laughed at us, who mocked our sacred rituals.'" For a moment, the women don't know where to look. But finally, Agave, Pentheus's mother, sees him first, and then the rest see him in this tree. They throw rocks at him, but they keep missing. Finally, again led by Agave, the women get together at the trunk of the tree, and they bring the tree down. Ah, the power of women and a nice glass of wine. Unstoppable! So Pentheus is on the ground with his mother above him, frantic. She's not herself. He tries to show her who he is. He takes off his disguise, calling out to his mother. It's me, Pentheus calls. It's your son. Please don't kill me, he calls to her. But she can't see it. She can't really see anything. Dionysus has Agave's mind completely. She doesn't know who is there or what she's doing to him. She's described as foaming at the mouth, her eyes rolling around in their sockets. She is not herself. Agave rips out her son's shoulder, tears his arm straight out of the socket. Pentheus's aunt, I know, is at his other arm, tearing away the flesh. Autonomy, his other aunt, and the other maenads grasp at him, taking handfuls and pulling. Flesh tears off in chunks. Their nails are covered in blood. Slowly, Pentheus is ripped to shreds by his mother, Agave, his aunts, Aino and Etanoe, and the rest of the women of Thebes, driven mad by Dionysus in his rage against Pentheus. Pentheus's body is strewn about the grass of the forest, pieces torn away, barely anything bigger than Pentheus's head, which his mother, Agave, stumbles upon after the frenzy. She takes it and fixes it to the top of her thyrsus, her wand, her symbol as a bacchant of Dionysus. Agave runs through the mountain, leaving behind her sisters with the other maenads, before she arrives in Thebes, still with the head of her son on the end of her thyrsus. She calls to Dionysus in her victory, They've won, she says. Quote, You shared the hunt with me, you share the prize. The chorus sings of Dionysus's success of the death of Pentheus, before Agave herself is on stage and speaking with the chorus. She has her prize, and she's excited to show these other maenads, these women who have followed Dionysus to Thebes. Look, she says, I caught this lion cub, all on my own. She holds out Pentheus's head. Where did you get it? they ask. The mountain, she says, Kitheron. Who killed it? they ask. I did, she says. I won the prize, but all the daughters of Cadmus helped in the hunt. The chorus continues to press Agave to test what she knows about what she's done, but she thinks it's an animal she's caught. She points to its young, soft hair. 
She praises Dionysus, Master, Hunter, and the rest of the Maenads and how he told them what to do. She asks for praise of the chorus, and they give it to her. But they ask about her child, Pentheus. Agave says yes, he'll praise her for this hunt too. Agave, returned from her hunt, holding the head of her dead son on the end of her thyrsus, is so excited. So excited to show off her prize to the chorus and to the people of Thebes. And so she does, still thinking she's killed this animal. So proud of herself for killing this animal. She calls to the people of Thebes, telling them how she did it, how she and the other daughters of Cadmus killed the beast without the weapons men use without javelins or nets. No, she says, we did it with just our nails, our sharp, pointed nails. The deed is ours. I caught this beast with my own hands. We tore its limbs apart with our own hands, she tells the people of Thebes proudly. Where's my father? she asks. Slaves, she says, go get Cadmus and Pentheus, my son. Where is he? He must nail this lion's head up there on the palace, on the frieze, this prize on display for everyone to see. Finally, Cadmus arrives on stage. Slaves are with him, carrying a corpse on a stretcher, though it's covered with a sheet. It's the body of poor Pentheus, Cadmus explains to the audience. I had to search for the pieces, looking long and hard. There were so many scattered so far apart. He's heard about what his daughters did, he says, for he'd left the Maenads and returned to Thebes with Tiresias before any of this had taken place. But he heard about it, so he went back up into the mountains to bring down the body of his grandson, of Pentheus. There he saw Atanui and Ino, still in a frenzy, and he heard about Agave, too, how she'd gone mad and returned to Thebes. Then he sees her. He hadn't before. Cadmus sees his daughter, Agave. He knows what she's just done, though it isn't clear if he's seen the head on her thyrsus quite yet. Agave, though, is still very much under Dionysus' spell, and she's proud of what she's just accomplished, thinking she's taken down a lion with her bare hands. "'You must be so proud of your daughters, father,' she tells Cadmus when he sees her. "'I've left behind the loom. I've done greater things. I've hunted with my own hands.'" She's so proud for doing something that women didn't do, something meant for men. It's tragic, really. It would be such a feat for her if it was an animal she'd hunted— but it wasn't. Now she shows her father the head on the thyrsus, proudly. It's her trophy for the hunt. Wouldn't you like to hold it? She asks, being unknowingly morbid. I'll hang it up in your house. Cadmus doesn't quite know how to handle this. He sees what she's really holding. He tells his daughter he must weep for her and for himself, that Zeus has destroyed them all. Agave responds, saying, quote, Old men are always grumpy, and that she hopes her son will grow up good at hunting, taking after his huntress mother. She tells Cadmus that it's his job to give her son good advice, and wouldn't someone go get her son anyway? It's just beyond tragic at this point. As Euripides tends to do, he's drawing out the tragedy, the pain, and the suffering. Agave goes on and on about her son, about her accomplishments in hunting. All the while, the audience is watching her, knowing what she's done, what she's holding in her hands. They have to just wonder when she'll realize. Cadmus, to his credit, realizes that she has no idea what she's done. 
You'll feel grief beyond all other grief when you realize, he tells her. Look up at the sky, he instructs. Stare at it for a moment. She does this, and when she looks back down, her expression is altered. Now, he asks, do you still feel it? Agave's mind is readjusting, slowly. She doesn't realize anything at first, but then she acknowledges she does feel things changing a little. So Cadmus quizzes her on her life, who she married, what she named her son. Finally, he asks, Whose head do you hold in your hands? A lion's head, she replies. Look at it again, he asks, carefully. Cadmus, honestly, is handling this brilliantly. He's my favorite for a reason. His daughter has just committed one of the most atrocious acts imaginable, but he cares more about getting her back to herself so she can understand than punishing her. He knows she'll punish herself enough when she knows the truth. And now, she does. She looks at the head in her hands, closer, carefully. Then, she says that, quote, I see horror, agony, I see my ruin. Finally, she knows she's holding her own son's head, but she doesn't know how or why. Who killed him? she asks. How did his head get in my hands? Cadmus is blunt, though he does tell her in the most caring way he can. You killed him, he replies finally. You and your sisters. He tells her that they were possessed, that they'd been made maenads. He explains that Dionysus had been insulted, and that's why he'd done it. He explains that Dionysus had been insulted by her and her sisters, that they didn't believe he was the son of Semele. That's why he'd done it. Then he shows her where the rest of Pentheus is, on the stretcher he's brought in with the slaves. Cadmus laments his family, the horror they've seen, cursed. His only male relative, torn apart by the boy's own mother, Cadmus's daughter, on the same mountain where his grandson, Actaeon, was torn apart by his own dogs after he spied on Artemis bathing. Yeah, they're all related. This founding family of Thebes is more than a little cursed. Semele killed by Zeus after sleeping with him, Actaeon torn apart by dogs, Pentheus torn apart by his own mother. Finally, Dionysus reappears, but he isn't in disguise now. This is the deus ex machina of the play, God in the Machinery. Dionysus appears from the palace roof. They're always up high. The Greeks had a whole stage set up for this. The plays were written for it, and the theaters made for these moments when the gods appear from above. He's there to finalize this curse on Cadmus's house. You and your wife Harmonia will become serpents, he tells Cadmus. He tells of a prophecy that Cadmus and Harmonia will drive an ox cart with a vast army. They'll sack cities. But when you reach Delphi, that's where you'll find yourselves doomed, never to return home. Your wife is the daughter of Ares, and because of that you'll be protected and will live forever amongst the gods. I'm telling you this as a son of Zeus, Dionysus tells everyone below. If you hadn't refused to see me for what I am, you could have had me as an ally instead of this. Cadmus and Agave say their goodbyes, they lament their fates, but what can they do? They have to be exiled from Thebes, even if a god hadn't just arrived to tell them exactly that. They leave, each exiting at different sides of the stage. Dionysus, as the god in the machinery, is brought upwards, off the stage and away. 
The Greeks had full mechanisms in place in their theaters to bring the gods in and out, as if by some godly magic. This play, this playwright, Euripides, he has my heart, truly. His plays are so incredible, so visceral. I'll take this opportunity to once again recommend you listen to the Medea episode of Deviant Women that I'm on. That play too is Euripides and we give him due credit. It's very interesting. His works are brilliant, the most violent and tragic, and honestly, the most dramatic in the true sense of the word. He is an icon. Euripides had died before this play was able to be staged. He'd been living in Macedonia and he died there. A relative of his found the play and Iphigenia at Aulis, another of his plays, in his things after he died, and they staged the play at the next year's festival in Athens. They say that Sophocles, himself near death by that time, wore a black cloak of mourning to the festival for Euripides. He wore it when he watched this play being staged for the first time. Euripides was awarded first place posthumously. Quite the way to go out, a farewell performance by one of Greece's most incredible playwrights, one who wasn't nearly as appreciated then as he is now. He only won first place four times, this was one of them. Everything that makes his work my favorite, and a favorite of us today, is what made him a little too much for the judges at the theatrical festivals that were staged every year in Athens in honor of Dionysus. friends thank you for listening this one was fun really fucking fun but then so is everything euripides does speaking of next week more euripides more magic a halloween episode reminder before halloween i'll be putting out a special patreon episode of ghost stories and stories of haunted houses of ancient greece kind of a dream honestly Consider becoming a patron if you're interested. You'll also have access to all my past episodes in there, including when I covered movies based around mythology, Disney's Hercules, Clash of the Titans, some others, and then the new companion episodes too. There's lots to listen to, honestly. And thank you. That is the main thing I want to say this week. You're all truly wonderful. I've been getting some amazing messages lately, especially after I announced that I had some stuff going on and why this episode was late. I really appreciate it. So I just want to remind you all that I read your messages, even if I can't get to answering everyone. You're all the best. I'm Liv, and I love Euripides and his shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. 
Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.